The Building H. Scribner Award is presented annually to one or more individuals who have made outstanding contributions that have a direct impact on the care of patients with renal disorders or have substantially changed the clinical practice of nephrology. Established in 1995, this award honors the physician who developed the arteriovenous shunt that first made long-term hemodialysis for chronic renal failure possible. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, I speak with 2010 recipient Hans Henrik Parving, MD, as well as the first co-recipients of the Scribner Award, Jack W. Moncrief, MD, and Robert P. Popovich, MD. Dr. Popovich, can you recollect what it was like to work side-by-side with Dr. Scribner and also how you felt about receiving an award that was named in his honor? It was like a dream come true. I've always had the greatest respect for Dr. Scribner, having worked with him. A pure joy. We would have these meetings of engineers, clinicians, and he would come walking and usually late, and it's like a fresh air came in, and he would listen for a few seconds what discussion was about, and then out of his mouth would come wisdom, pure joy. To me, receiving that award was the greatest thing of my career, and then when I show my friends my awards, it's the first one I go to. <laughs> but then I've been very fortunate to have worked with Dr. Scribner and Dr. Moncrief. Get a bunch of bright people together. It's amazing what can happen. Dr. Moncrief, you and Dr. Popovich were the first recipients of the award. Please tell us about your career as it led to the Building Scribner Award. Well, we were, I think, both very surprised to have been the first recipients of the award named for Dr. Building Scribner. Uh, of course, we were flattered, and uh, it was, I think, one of the highlights of, of, of my professional life. But we felt like that there was a recognition that there was another way that dialysis could be done in managing patients with end-stage kidney disease. When I arrived in Austin back in 1969, there was no dialysis in this, the capital state of Texas. Uh, there was no dialysis carried out. Uh, so uh, I got in on the ground floor of the initiation of a dialysis facility here, and a young biomedical engineer graduated from the University of Washington. His name was Dr. Robert Popovich, and he came to Austin to uh, set up the biomedical engineering department here at the University of Texas. And since I was the only nephrologist in Austin, I was fortunate enough for him to come by and say, uh, hey, Jack, uh, would you like for us to work together? Uh, And it uh, was a very fortuitous event in which a patient presented to me uh, with end-stage kidney disease from type 2 diabetes, interestingly enough. Uh, I, like Dr. Pavin, had noticed that the community of Austin was flooded with patients who were uh, ill from reaching kidney disease and then end-stage kidney disease from diabetes, and there was really nothing that I had to offer as a nephrologist except dialysis, and we did not accept patients for dialysis at that time who had type 2 diabetes uh, because it was felt by the general nephrology community that these patients would do poorly with dialysis, and I even set up a death committee, which was first described by the Washington group and published in Life magazine 
showing that there were a group of uh, people in a community who would come together and help the nephrologist decide whether or not a patient should be offered dialysis or not. In those days, there was no money for dialysis. The Medicare payment for dialysis didn't come in until 1973, and when I arrived in 1969, 70, 71, 72, for those four years, there was no government or economic support for dialysis. And so the eventful development of a new procedure, which was less expensive than hemodialysis, uh, at home hemodialysis, that is CAPD, a fortuitous event when I presented to Dr. Popovich and his students a patient who I could not establish a vascular access on. Every time I did, for seven separate surgical procedures, the patients clotted the arteriovenous access. So this patient was about to expire from end-stage kidney disease when the concept of CAPD came out of that that, that uh, uh, scientific meeting. And I feel fortunate not only to have uh, dealt with Dr. Popovich over the years and to have seen exactly what Dr. Pavin has just finished describing, the development of the capacity to do something about the majority of patients who develop progressive kidney dysfunction, those associated with type 2 diabetes. Now I have in my treatment bag a therapy which I am, uh, am uh, personally experiencing as a miracle uh, in the management of these patients. So uh, I feel very fortunate to have been in on the ground floor of the development of nephrology in Austin and uh, I think somewhat in the United States and with the aid of Dr. Popovich uh, uh, throughout the world with the development of continuous ambulatory peritoneal dialysis. And I felt like the recognition by the nephrology community in the form of the Belding Scribner Award was a wonderful thing for, for me personally. Dr. Parving, you're the 2010 Scribner recipient. Please tell us about your career. I graduated from medical school at the University of Copenhagen in 69. I went directly into science. I was employed at the Department of Clinical Physiology, and my task was to develop a method for measuring permeability of large molecules in human beings. And I used a couple of years of my life trying to do that, and I was pretty unsuccessful. And there was actually and a moment of quitting, uh, but a good friend of mine persuaded me to give it another go, and uh, a month later we actually had a method which we could measure permeability of albumin, IgG, and even larger molecules in human beings, and ever since I've been in science. I then graduated or had my doctoral thesis a couple of years later, and that was dealing with hypertension and diabetes and the pathogenesis of these two conditions causing vascular damage. Then I went into endocrine diseases. I was trained as an endocrinologist. I became the chief physician at Steno Diabetes Center in 83. I became professor in 97. Then I worked at Steno nearly for 25 years. And in 2007, I moved to the National Hospital of Denmark, which is a huge hospital with 2,000 beds, the biggest one we have. And I'm professor at that institution nowadays. Dr. Parving, I'd like to take advantage of the benefit of your 40 years of experience and ask you an expansive question. How has the care for patients with kidney disease changed? The care for kidney disease has changed 
immensely, nearly a revolution. I remember vividly when I finished my doctoral thesis in uh, 75, uh, I was working at Steno, which is a small specialized hospital owned by Novo Nordisk, uh, which takes care of uh, diabetic patients. And the hospital in those days was flooded by young people who waited to die from urinia. We had no treatment tool how to prevent the disease. We had no treatment when they developed overt proteinuria. And finally, uh, when we needed assistance from our friends within the Department of Nephrology in Copenhagen, they did not offer diabetic patients dialysis, uh, mainly due to the fact that many of these patients were already having had a stroke. Many of them was blind or severe visual impairment. They have MI, they have heart failure, they have amputation. They were just poor life left to die. And in the same year, actually, uh, Dr. Kusman from the Justin Clinic in the U.S. Uh, wrote a paper in JAMA where he stated that diabetic nephropathy is irreversible in humans. There are no cure. There are no treatment. There's a relentless decline in commercial filtration rate towards death. And on average in those days, uh, the average survival was between five to seven years. And then half of the patients had vanished from the earth. So that was the, the outlook in those days. And what, what I actually was interested in, I was interested in hypertension and to a less extent in, in diabetes, but my interest in hypertension then brought me to uh, try to treat blood pressure in patients with diabetic kidney disease. And uh, in the old days, we used beta blockers. We used uh, always a diuretic because they had fluid and sodium retention, and we used hydralazine. And we published the first data in uh, 1983 in the Lancet, where we could describe that we was capable of lowering blood pressure in type 1 patients who have diabetic kidney disease. It lowers also albuminuria. More importantly, however, the drop in kidney function measured by an isotope technique went down from nearly 11 milliliters per minute per year to less than 3. And uh, further on, we could demonstrate that this beneficial effect on progression was improved by prolonging the treatment uh, with uh, blood pressure low agent, so the improved uh, output was uh, actually observed. Furthermore, we could also demonstrate that approximately half of the patients receiving aggressive blood pressure lowering treatment uh, had a drop in kidney function around one milliliter per minute. And one has to remember that when we started this kind of treatment, the general uh, concept was that you should be very cautious by lowering blood pressure, and blood pressure usually caused ischemia, and that was a dangerous situation to lower it too much. Uh, however, as you all know, Barry Brenner uh, in his animal experiment suggested that there was actually hyperperfusion and increased pressure within the glomeruli, which was the driving force, and I'm a very strong believer in that concept. Anyway, uh, a couple of years later, in 1986, uh, the first demonstration came that uh, lowering blood glucose by using insulin pumps uh, could actually postpone the development of microalbuminuria. Microalbuminuria had been described already by us in uh, John Carlo Viberti from Guys in 1982, uh, and that was actually a, a pre-runner of a diabetic kidney disease, so we have the opportunity now to postpone the disease. At the end of the 80s, we had the first long-term data dealing with blood pressure loan treatment, which have demonstrated that the life expectancy, instead of on average in Copenhagen being seven years without nephropathy, now has gone up to 14 years, so that was a major step ahead. 
In the year uh, 1991, uh, the first lab study was carried out showing that by use of ACE inhibition, you can actually prevent uh, the occurrence of diabetic kidney disease in type 1. That was a study we performed for eight years, uh, and we could also demonstrate in that study published in the British Medical Journal that uh, we could preserve a kidney function, and that's, of course, what this really matters. Two years later, the important studies was published. The DCCT trial was published using uh, uh, intensified uh, glucose lowering, and they could demonstrate that not only development from normal to microbe in Europe, but also from micro to avert nephropathy could be slowed by improved glycemic control. And in the same year, Ed Lewis and his co-workers in the Captopril study group demonstrated that drug pressure is good, but blocking it with Captopril is even better. So there was this additional information about ACE inhibition. A couple of years later, I think the most important study ever published in diabetes was uh, published by Michael Maurer and his co-workers uh, dealing with pancreas transplant. Uh, it was 1997, uh, where they published the paper in New England Journal of Medicine of uh, the experience of 10 years of successful transplant, pancreas transplantation, where the patient had been without insulin for 10 years because the pancreas worked perfectly all right. And what Mike could uh, demonstrate in that study, he had biopsies at baseline, he had biopsies at 5 years and biopsies at 10 years. He could demonstrate for the first time ever in human beings uh, that structural lesions, which look uh, nasty, meaning Kimmelsville-Wilson's uh, eye fuse and also nodule, could actually reverse, could go back. Or in other words, that we have the first really clear evidence that what is going on in the kidney, at least in diabetic patients, is a reversible process. This is a dynamic process with synthesis and degradation. So that was really a major step ahead. A couple of years later, we was lucky enough, together with Ed Lewis, to demonstrate that we could introduce a concept called remission and regression of diabetic kidney disease. We looked at patients who had more than three grams of albumin and looked at the possibility of lowering it to less than 500 milligrams, and that actually occurred in one in three of our patients. And those who had the benefit of such a huge lowering of albuminuria had a much much better. Uh, long-term prognosis than those who did not obtain that. Uh, a couple of years later, we also had the, the luck of demonstrating that even low-protein diet, even though it's cumbersome and difficult to change people's lifestyle, actually had a beneficial effect on end-stage renal failure and death. Uh, and finally, in the year 2005, we had uh, a follow-up study from our institution uh, publishing KI, where we could demonstrate that at least in our hands, the survival in type 1 patients with diabetic nephropathy has improved from 7 years to more than 21 years. So there have been a major improvement in the outlook for these uh, young people. So all in all, dealing with type 1, you can say that improved glycemic control is beneficial right on. Blood pressure is uh, lowering is a very good tool. Lowering uh, by using uh, blockers of the renin and tensin system is definitely preferable. And finally, the difficult one, low-protein diet works, but it's very difficult to implement because people don't like a change in lifestyle. The reason why I do it this way is the following. Uh, diabetes in the old days was always type 1 diabetes. People didn't care about type 2. It was that disease which was, uh, has uh, no impact, actually, on the scientific community. 
it was of little interest, while nowadays it has changed completely, so that type 2 is now dominating. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.